1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am here for a special discussion focusing in on the crisis that we are all facing right now around the world. Um, uh, we are joined today by a great group, including uh, not only our regulars like Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. Hi, Rosa.
2: Hi, David.
1: And Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. Hi, Corey. Hello, David. And David Sanger of the New York Times. Hi, David. Hey, David. But we are also joined by a friend of ours who you have uh, heard on past uh, episodes, uh, Ron Klain, formerly chief of staff to two vice presidents of the United States, including Joe Biden, formerly the Ebola czar in the Obama administration, and most recently known to at least four million of you as the guy who stood up on a video that was distributed over the weekend (laughs) and provided a perspective on the current crisis. Uh, that was different in tone and substance from some of that you've been getting out of the White House. Hi, Ron.
3: Uh, Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. And I want to apologize to those 4 million people for my very bad handwriting, which that video revealed.
1: Uh, there was a certain kind of uh, artisanal, yeah there People was artisanal, that. artisanal quality to the thing that uh, everybody <laughs> yeah, appreciates yeah. these days um, well, let, let me start with you, Ron, because you know you you have a unique perspective on this, having faced these challenges and being responsible for challenges like this in the past and having made that presentation. Um, and I should add that you are an advisor to the Biden campaign, but what, what, what were you trying to get at in putting out that video and where do you think we stand?
3: Well, look, I think the point of the video was try to give people some background on how we got into the mess we are, what kinds of mistakes were made of organization, of philosophy, of of judgment that got us into this mess, and then to put forward Vice President Biden's particular plan, which I think most Democrats support for how to go forward how to fix the testing mess, how to really ramp up the capacity of hospitals to treat patients and how to get uh, healthcare workers the safe protective gear that they need. And also how to make the next down payment on the kind of economic assistance that we're gonna need to get through the economic consequences of this. And I think people reacted strongly to the video because it's the kind of answers they're not getting out of the Trump administration right now. I think the president from the start has downplayed the threat Uh, I think he had a brief moment of conversion where he appreciated what kind of trouble we're in and uh, has made a very series of wild stabs at trying to turn it around that are uneven, uncoordinated, and not particularly effective. Uh, And already now, uh, he's now talking about kind of uh, the cure being worse than the disease. Maybe it's time to go back to business as normal in America, just kind of take our chances with the thing. So I think uh, we aren't getting the kind of leadership we need in terms of where I think we are. We are still at the acceleration phase of this. And so as bad as things feel, they're going to get worse, not better. We're going to see the number of cases uh, continue to climb. We're going to see the strain, particularly in our healthcare system, get very, very dramatic. We're going to see hospitals be unable to treat all the patients they get. We're already seeing doctors and nurses report that they're being forced to reuse or go without protective gear. That's going to get more healthcare workers sick. That's ironically going to drive down the capacity of our system to treat patients, even as we need to treat more and more patients. And we're going to see the consequences of that in terms of some very bad outcomes, shortages of healthcare, other kinds of problems. And meanwhile, we're also just in the early days of dealing with the economic crisis that all this has created, which too will accelerate and get worse before it gets better. Well,
1: thanks, and I think that's a good place to open. One of the things we try to do here is step beyond uh, the political components of it and look at what's important uh, in in as objective a sense as possible. Um, Corey, I I, I suspect, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, I would never do that because you would take them right out if you didn't like what I said. Um, But, uh, you know, I think a lot of the things that Ron was talking about are not particularly Democrat or Republican things, they sound pretty commonsensical to me. I'm wondering what your reaction is.
0: Yeah, so I was, um, I was a little bit worried about the setup of this conversation being one that was partisan uh, for exactly the reason you suggest, David, that there's, there are good governance practices that our federal government isn't, carrying out that all of us have a right to respect irri- to expect irrespective of whether we are partisan supporters of the president or his partisan opponents um, and it exactly you are exactly right david rothkopf i was i was so
1: hoping to hear that
0: <laughs> <laughs> that in fact the the failures of the president and the administration uh, shock even this conservative, you know, that the president has turned what should be daily information um, conversations with the American people into substitutes for his political rallies, where he is not talking about uh, the virus, he's trying to shape the political landscape Um, and we actually need to embrace the notion that there are good governance issues at stake here and conveying the right kind of information, helping state governors do what's needed, having the federal government do what state governors with the urgency of their statewide um, demands can't do which is look across the national landscape and see how they can be helped and supported. I mean, so much that needs to be done. And and I commend the video from the weekend for emphasizing and reminding all of us that, you know, oh, wow, this is how government's supposed to work. Well yeah,
3: if David, I could, no, can I just have boy. one thing there? I mean, just to reinforce the idea that this is definitely not a partisan point, let me start by saying that some of the public officials who are doing the best job with this are Republicans. Mike DeWine, I spent all of 2018, my friend Rich Cordray was a Democratic nominee in Ohio, spent all of 2018 trying to beat Mike DeWine. Mike DeWine is doing a great job dealing with this response. Uh, Larry Hogan in my home state of Maryland, and uh, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. Uh, These Republican governors are stepping up, as are, of course, Democratic governors like Andrew Cuomo, like Jay Inslee, like Gretchen Whitmer. But the point is, there is no Democratic or Republican way to fight Corona. There's only the right way and the wrong way. And the right way involves really uh, putting aside kind of ideology and digging into uh, using effectively government to address this. And I think one problem we have here, I mean, uh, you, to the name of this broadcast, is an attitude on the part of the Trump administration that government is somehow the deep state, it's not to be trusted, and that mindset has really uh, harmed the effectiveness of this response.
1: Yeah, no, no question about it, and I think that that point of view that both um, you just now and Corey have, have uh, described is one that is also touched upon in some of the work that David uh, Sanger has done recently. You did that great story with three others of your colleagues last week, David, uh, talking about the um, the the sort of advanced planning work that had been done associated with uh, crises like this to prepare us, um, and that was not only work that was done in the context of the Obama administration, but uh, there were warning signs that this was something to prepare for. That was coming up through the intelligence community and the national security community, including in a national security threat assessment that we haven't seen because it looks awkward, but which is written entirely by civil servants and, and Republican appointees. Right, David? Well, that's right. Um,
4: three I think levels that there levels of, sort of-, of warning that we got here. And and frankly, I would say that there is blame to be shared in both the Obama administration and Moving too slowly to learn some of the lessons that came out from Swine Flu and from Ebola, which of course Ron uh handled. Uh then there are a lot of there's a lot of blame for the past three years in the Trump administration as well. Just to walk our listeners through these three. After Ron's work on Ebola, and Ron, you, you should uh, jump in on this. The NSC asked for a big lessons learned report, uh, which was done by Chris Kirchhoff on the NSC staff. We linked to a copy of it. It's not a classified document. But it then laid out a whole number of things that had to happen differently in different departments. It came out in August of uh, 2016, just as the NSC was sort of consumed by the uh, Russian uh, intrusions on voting machine, and on the voting system, and we're beginning to learn about the social media. So it didn't get a whole lot of headlines at the time, and the only thing the administration managed to do of substance before they left office was to create this um, special office within the NSC, which later got got merged into the WMD office by the Trump administration. Then there was a scenario done by the Obama administration for the incoming uh, Trump administration officials, cabinet level. Most of the cabinet members were gone by the time, of course, this hit. And then most importantly, there was a health and human services simulation called Crimson Contagion. That started in January of 2019 and ended in August, focused on a uh, a virus coming out of actually a flu coming out of China and particularly hitting Chicago, but spreading around the rest of the country. And it almost exactly mimicked what we are now seeing in the wave acceleration. And that made it pretty clear uh, in that estimate that there would be 110 million people affected. 7.7 7.7 million hospitalizations, 586,000 deaths. And uh, you would have thought that would have been a wake-up call. And we have the administration's response to our story was, well, that was a slightly different kind of virus, and uh, let's not look back. We're only looking forward right now. Well, you know, there will be a moment for the 9-11 commission of this, of this set of events.
3: Yeah, if it could, I mean, I, I'd like to respond to that. I think uh, I appreciate David's story and reporting, but I think it was overly focused on the lens of Chris's particular report uh, and didn't really capture what really happened. Uh, most of the work happened before Chris uh, wrote his report uh, a year and a half after Ebola. And so what we did immediately after when I left the White House is set up this Global Health Security Pandemic Prevention and Response Office inside the White House and uh, began to ramp up our capacity. Uh, we created a network of 100 hospitals that could treat uh, Ebola and special pathogens. That that network remains in place today. That network's the backbone of what's going to get us through this coronavirus thing if it can. That's something the Obama administration put in place before Chris wrote his report. In addition, they massively increased the testing cap- capabilities of public health labs, and that's... The people who are screaming that they can't get the test kits are the people we funded and got ramped up back then to create the infrastructure to make testing possible. So I think Chris's report was a useful uh, tool at the very end of this process, but a lot of the hard work happened to get ready for this, and that was all in place. Now, what happened since then? What happened since then is, as uh, David noted, President Trump in uh, July of 2018, after John control of the National Security Council, disbanded this Pandemic Prevention Office. Now, I know their pitch is that they folded it into WMD, but the people in WMD are looking for terrorists with bioweapons. That's why they didn't see this coming, because they're looking for a different thing. When I was running this at the White House, I used to send those people out of the meetings because they were a distraction, uh, in, the, in the sense that they were constantly worried about terrorists showing up with aerosolized Ebola, and our problem was students coming back from spring break. And so uh, you need people who are focused on this. the idea that these offices were combined is like saying we abolished the fire department, but hired a few firefighters to ride in the back of cop cars. That's what Trump did. That's why we weren't ready. In the meantime, also there was an effort to take funds away. So the Ebola response funded forward these kinds of efforts I'm talking about, the hospital network, the testing lab network, all these things. And in every instance, The Trump administration has proposed to take those funds away. and Indeed, to fight Zika, the Republicans who then ran the House made us divert funds out of these preparation efforts into the fight against Zika in 2016. So uh, I think that uh, certainly uh, we probably, uh, you know, some things that weren't done in Chris's report, but a lot of things were done. We were less ready as a country for this in uh, the winter of 2020 when this hit than we were Uh, three years earlier things were done to unprepare the country including cutting the predict program cutting global offices of cdc Uh, so i think um we always we should have been better ready but we got unready in the past three years and now i'd like to welcome a new
1: sponsor to the show lightstream if you're like most of us you carry a balance on your credit cards and if those cards come with high interest rates then you should investigate our friends at lightstream It's easy to lower your interest rate and save with Lightstream credit card consolidation loan. You can get a rate as low as 5.95% with auto pay. Uh, The idea behind Lightstream is that they believe that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience. They try to deliver that. Uh, the general feedback we have gotten from people suggest that's what they do. Uh, they sent us a number of testimonials that, you know, were from their uh, customers that said things like, I heard about Lightstream on a podcast and was able to look at the website and get clear information. The application process was quick and easy, or I heard a commercial checked into a consolidation loan and just a few hours later had my approval and funds ready to be transferred, awesome, you should look into this. You know, you can get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000. There are no fees. You can even get your money as soon as the day that you apply. Apply today to get a special interest rate discount and save even more. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash State. All one word. Lightstream is L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash DeepState. All one word. Subject to credit approval. Rate includes a 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit Lightstream.com slash DeepState for more information. I, I should say, by the way, again, to sort of keep with the the general theme here, there were plenty of people in the Trump administration, uh, people who believed in good governance and who understood the lessons of the past that would have done it differently. Um and some were mentioned in David's article and so forth. But but uh, you know, it, it what what can happen is that you get a few people with a political agenda, uh, and they become a distraction from the good governance goals. Now, you know, one one thing, you know, David had wrote that article as as he often does with a couple or three other colleagues because he's a humble guy and he's willing to share the, the 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 compliments. Rosa has has participated in the writing of a paper that's just come out called Securing Justice, Health, and Democracy Against the COVID-19 threat. And there are seven people who contributed to this article, which shows just how humble Rosa is. Well, it shows oh, okay.
4: that there are more people willing to work with Rosa than are willing to work with me.
2: David. <laughs> no, I can't take I can't take any of the credit for that paper. Uh, in Any case, but although I'll I'll, I'll I'll claim some credit, but I don't deserve any of it.
1: Well, one of the things that I liked about the paper, which I just I just had a chance to sort of go through, was it was approaching this thing from again from this sort of higher level that we try to get to, which is what's the right way to do this? How do you respond? You know, not a not a political level at all, but in the kind of seven key points that you make, one of them, which I find particularly interesting, and I'd like to shift the conversation for the next 15 or so minutes, if we can, to this 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 other point um, is has to do with what do we do going forward here, because we're right now in the teeth of a crisis. And there's a lot of emphasis on what do we need today? And that's reasonable and it's rational. And we've got a lockdown and we need tests and we need masks and we need ventilators. We need a government that is prioritizing these things. We need the federal government to work with the state government and so forth. But you know, we're starting to get a bit of a debate about how long the health response takes a priority over the economic response and you know, that's, you know, you can sort of predict the sides in that one, but th- but that's happening. But we're not getting what what really needs to be the next phase of this, which is how do you prepare for the recurrence of this disease if it recurs in, in the winter? How do you prepare for another crisis that might come at the same time as we're just a month or two away from the beginning of hurricane season? And we could very easily have both of these crises affecting us at the same time. We're an international crisis. How do we learn the lessons of this crisis? Uh, because these kind of things do happen, and you notice just in, you know, and Ron was talking, was talking about Ebola, he was talking about uh, Zika, we were talking about swine flu and H1N1 and so on. This is a regular occurrence for which we were unprepared how do we plan for that in the future and so i don't i don't know rosie you may talk about any aspect of this paper that you want but i was a little i was especially interested in where do we go from here kind of questions
2: it's a great question and you know some of the planning has to do with some of the issues that that ron laid out and that david touched upon you know one of the ways you plan for this is that you you don't assume that just because a crisis is not happening right now that therefore things are stable and you'll never have a crisis, and and this is something that's this has been a I mean as as Ron knows knows better than any of us I think it's been a perennial problem for the U.S. government. You know how do you get away from the what's in the headlines today phenomenon to maintain these kinds of long-term planning and response capacities? Whether you're thinking about what's the next virus that comes down the pike or whether you're thinking about what other black swan events or or shocks uh, or sort of long-term trends that aren't even necessarily surprise you know, the slow roll kinds of things, the climate change types of problems where everybody knows it's happening. It's not as though it's a surprise, but it's constantly being displaced, even, even in a, even an administration that takes it seriously, it's very, very hard to keep people focused on, on slow rolling long-term problems when the world keeps serving up, uh, emergencies day after day. Um, so I think that, that part of it is, is just a kind of deliberate strategy of investment in those, in those capabilities and not dismantling them. I mean, obviously the, the, whatever the, errors of the Obama administration may, may have been, and I can't speak to that, it's crystal clear that the Trump administration, you know, compounded them times about a thousand. Um, so, so you know, number one is just keep your eyes on those possible threats. I mean, whether or not we had specific intelligence back in, back in November or January uh, about this particular virus, whether or not we had done war games for a virus like this in the last year, Everyone has known for decades that something like this could easily come along again. Uh, the surprise is only when and exactly what form it would take, but not that it would happen sooner or later. And it is you know, criminal that we had allowed our capabilities to respond to deteriorate so dramatically. But, but I, I also think, and, and I'm going to do something that I, I never do which is talk about silver linings and opportunities as well as threats.
1: Um, yes, by the way, what? Ron, <laughs> Ron this, know, is a sign, this is a sign of the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. This
2: is a sign of the end well, of days. Now that we have finally reached the apocalypse, I have been predicting. Also, if you're going to do
4: that, what does that <laughs> mean, Corey, to do? <laughs> like
2: Corey can take my old thorny crown of entropy. But, but <laughs> here's the this? thing, right? I mean, one of the things that this crisis is revealing um, is, 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 is both the various gaps in our social safety net and our health care system, none of them, again, are total shockers, but this is making absolutely glaringly, painfully obvious the many, many gaps, the, you know, the low-income hourly workers who are now completely screwed, you know, the contractors who can't apply for unemployment insurance because they're not technically unemployed, but are desperate and out of work as a result of this crisis. The food insecurity that means that when the public schools are shut down, you suddenly have a crisis because there are children who are getting most of their meals through the schools. Um, You you name it, and I could go on and on and on. This is both highlighting things that have been quiet crises all along and have now erupted into loud, visible public crises. And that's actually not such a bad thing. I mean, it's a bad thing that, that so many people are suffering, but the fact that it is forcing the comfortable rest of us to confront these is, is not a bad thing. Similarly, what is being revealed is all of the rules and policies that have been absolutely stupid all along. Uh, and, you know, to name just a, a few, I mean, this is obviously not foreign policy related at all. But uh, another issue dear to my heart and the, the criminal justice front, right, that police departments and criminal justice systems and state level are making many of the changes reformers have been calling for for years and years, such as not locking people up for trivial misdemeanors and letting people out of jail if they're in there for trivial reasons, uh, because doing otherwise adds to this public health crisis. And it may very well be you know, that, that if we can do it, if we can kind of hang on to the learning that we are obtaining in this crisis, that we will both be able to find some ways longer term to address some of the glaring inequities and gaps in our social safety net, and that we will find some ways to forever jettison some of the crueler, stupider, and least efficient policies that have now been revealed in all their cruelty and stupidity. So so I think that there are there are some potential for a sort of radical reimagining both of our domestic social contract and of global governance institutions. And the question is will we all, will we all be so depressed and distracted by the, you know, the closure of Starbucks, that we are incapable of seizing that opportunity? Or we will will we find some way to organize on these issues, despite the fact that we're all going to be doing it by by Skype uh, or Zoom or whatever, to, to try to do that work of reimagining institutions?
1: Now, Ron, I know you've got to go in a couple of minutes, but I think this would be a good place for you to offer, you know, a comment on this sort of broader thought of can we learn from this and where do we go from from here that Rosa has just so well framed?
3: Yeah, I think it's a very powerful framing, and I just um and a lot of big ideas there that are worth thinking about. I would say that um just a couple observations. First of all, uh history teaches that we don't learn from pandemics. Uh uh so the largest single mass death event in the United States is the Spanish flu of 1918. Six hundred thousand people died, more than World War II and World War One combined. Uh, you can go across the country; there are hundreds of memorials to World War One, World War Two. There's one memorial any place in America to the Spanish flu. Uh, what history tells us is that these epidemics come; they kill a lot of people, and then we all get back to work. And um, and so I think it's a challenge. I think Rose's framing of this is a powerful challenge to not let this happen this time, and to think more mindfully about this this time because I think the issues she's teeing up are absolutely right. History says that's not what will happen, but of course history can be changed, and hopefully it will be changed uh, this time. Second thing I'd say I'd add to Rose's list is we need to really understand how our global interconnectedness, which is generally a good thing. It produces trade and commerce, learning and culture, but makes this threat a more pervasive and serious threat. Um, uh, this is a different world in 1918 in one way that we're less safe than we were 100 years ago. Uh, someone in any place on the planet can get on a scooter. We've done amazing jobs of developing Asia and Africa over the past 20 years. And as a result, there are roads to places that there never were before. Someone who gets a disease in a remote village can get on a scooter, come to a regional capital, someone can get on a train, go to a national capital, land any place on planet Earth in uh, 24 hours. And that, that's one reason why, you know, David earlier went through kind of the roll call of recent epidemics. It's one reason why this is more of a global phenomenon, because we've connected the world. We've connected the world for a lot of purposes, but one way we've connected the world is for disease transmission. That's a reality we have to face. And then we've connected the world economically in such a way that the old solutions can't work. So President Trump has boasted from day one that he imposed travel restrictions on China, and that was a key part of keeping us safe. And the obvious fact is it didn't. The disease is here. And the obvious reason is why he didn't. There tough talking travel restrictions on China. Those restrictions never, ever in- prevented the importation of goods to this country because it couldn't. We need Chinese medicines to run our hospitals, Chinese goods to run our hospitals. Those Chinese goods came on Chinese planes and Chinese boats with Chinese crews. And so and even when the president recently cut off travel to Europe, again, Goods and services allowed to travel here has to be. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's the way the world is. But it means that erecting these barriers to keep people out will never be an effective strategy because we're not going to really keep people out. Hundreds, 300,000 people came here from China between the public disclosure of this disease and the time the president even put the first restriction on. And then since then, hundreds of thousands have continued to come here. And so we, we just need to understand that 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 this is a connected planet that presents serious opportunities, but also serious challenges. And we can't unplug it. We can't really undo that and, and have the kind of modern life that we want to have. And so that also has to be factored in to this thinking going forward. The last thing I'll say is I think we also need to change our understanding about the economic choices we're going to face in the weeks ahead. This conversation has been about... Lockdown versus unlockdown, switch off versus switch on. That's not how the economy works. That's not how this is going to work. Even in the lockdown period we're in now, there's still probably about a, a third of the economy that's running at full speed. Uh, people who are growing food and getting the food into boxes and get driving it to places and getting it to distribution centers and getting it to grocery stores people who are making the electricity work and the water work and who are delivering our meals and who are cooking our meals and all these things, that's still going on. And so we can't forget about those people and what it takes to keep those people as safe as possible. And then when we switch to a more active role, role for the economy, we don't have to go back to 100% all at once. If we had a functioning OSHA, we'd be writing rules right now for how to reopen factories with workers farther apart, maybe making Fewer things, but still making things at some point in time here in a way that helps reduce the risk of spread of the disease. So we can't have this on-off mentality about this. When we're off, we're never totally off. When we're on, we shouldn't go all the way back to 100% on. Well, that's a a, a, a fantastic
1: sum- summation, and I just want to say, Ron, before you go, thank you for joining us for the f- the first part of this conversation that we're having here today. The other folks uh, remain, but 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 you know, you've come in every couple of weeks during this, and it's been hugely helpful. We hope you will come back, uh, and hopefully sooner than later, we will be discussing this in the past tense uh, and not as a crisis that we are in the middle of. But in the meantime. Uh, thanks. Thanks very much. And we look forward to seeing your next publicly displayed artworks.
3: Well, I appreciate that, David. Always great to talk with this group of super smart people about these super hard problems. And uh, I look forward to uh, coming back again soon.
1: Hi. And now a word from one of our newer sponsors. With no sports to watch and games to bet on, the presidential election may be the only competition still running. We checked with my bookie and they are taking action on the outcome. It looks like it'll be Trump versus Biden. So you could place a bet on that. You might take a shot at Bernie Sanders getting the nomination, and they say $100 will win you $800. My bookie has odds on everything political. So, from what people are going to say in debates to the next big issue that emerges in the headlines, my bookie has it all. So, join now. And start winning today, visit mybookie.ag and use promo code DeepState for a 50% deposit bonus. At mybookie, you can bet on anything. So, thank you very much, Ron. So, Corey, let me go to to you. Um, You know, you, you began. Uh, early on in this conversation with a reference to a term called good governance. And as I was listening to Rosa, was I was listening to, to Ron, I also listened to David, by the way, but it's not relevant here. <laughs> uh, but, but, as I, but, but I, I, was, I, was, never listening. Yeah. I
0: was, was listening. That was gratuitous, David, by uh, which I mean to say delightful.
1: Thank you. Uh, but uh, as I was listening to them, I was thinking about you know, something that was said to me by sort of one of my mentors in government during the Clinton administration and a guy who was also a dear friend who's unfortunately no longer with us, uh, Sandy Berger, who used to say on a regular basis that Washington was the place where the urgent always overtakes the important. And you know, I think about it, particularly in the context of the world that all of us, the four of us have sort of devoted ourselves to in one way or another in our lives, which is to say national security, that there were certain areas of national security that were up the pecking order, and there were certain areas of national security that were down the pecking order. And the very bottom of the pecking order were things that were transnational in nature, things like pandemics, things like climate change, things like... Uh, development assistance and 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 that kind of thing. And, and you know, that was, you know, th- those were kind of national security nice to haves. You know, if we have a chance, we'll have a meeting on that. And, oh, all those eggheads will go off and think about it uh, because it's not urgent. It's not as important as dealing with North Korea's nuclear um, uh, ca- capabilities. But as we've seen in the course of the past several years, the biggest disruptions that the United States have faced have come from those issues, nota- notably climate change and, and pandemics. And the question is, you know, when does the penny drop? When, when, so when,
0: I goal. don't actually agree with the framing of that, uh, David, because it seems to me that um, it's not wrong for the Defense Department to have as its priorities, their explicit responsibilities for managing near-term problems, um, and for the problems that are directly theirs to solve. If you look at the times that the Defense Department has made the largest contributions to these larger, beyond the confines of their statutory responsibilities, kinds of problems, it's been when they immediately affect the Defense Department's ability to do its statutory responsibilities. So they get serious about renewable energy when casualties during uh, refueling um, convoys in Afghanistan begin to take a grave toll. You see the Navy right now really worried about climate change because their ports are going to be underwater. Um, and so I I don't think it's fair to say they always treated these as luxuries. It's that um, where problems go beyond the confines of one department to solve, it requires actually, uh, I hate the phrase and I hate the the cop-out of of whole-of-government stuff, but it is actually the job of the National Security Council staff to say, this is a problem bigger than any of your departments, and we've got cross-cutting interests in it. So the failure is is bureaucratically situated in the White House um, and across lots of administrations not just across um, recent ones, but I agree with you that one of, that just as there was a long shadow and a disproportionate interest in the national security community in terrorism after September 11th, and there was a long shadow and disproportionate interest in the health of financial markets after the 2008 crisis, I very much hope that we will see as a long shadow and disproportionate focus of the national security community after this pandemic to how do we strengthen uh, both cross government capacity to understand and contribute to these problems? How do we craft a leadership role for the United States that advances international cooperation and attention to these issues. That I absolutely agree with where you were headed on it.
1: You know, I have to say, just for the benefit of the listeners out there, uh, that one of the reasons that I so value having Corey here is she's one of the few people I know who, as soon as she starts to disagree with me, my first reaction is, I'm wrong, and I'm going to learn why I'm wrong. <laughs>
0: So, oh, you're uh, so nice, David. What a beautiful well, compliment, my friend.
1: Well, it's 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 true. Now, David, you're studying this in real time. And one of the clear messages of the article you wrote last week and of our discussion thus far is that a lot of the things we needed to be doing, we weren't doing. Some of the things that we used to be able to do, we couldn't do anymore because they made decisions not to do it. Um, and these issues have exacerbated the crisis. Now, the, my, my, my question to you is, as you are working and reporting on this right now, is is there a learning curve? Because I got to tell you, watching the daily White House briefings, I'm not sure that there's much. There was a moment there, as, as somebody alluded to earlier, where we thought, oh, is there a learning curve? But but that there doesn't seem to be. But behind the scenes, are the right people getting airtime? Are the right people getting traction? Are we getting better at this now that we're uh 10 weeks into it?
4: Well, one would hope we are. Uh, you know, there's been a professional crowd, the the deep state or um Deep State Department, as the president said the other day, as uh, Anthony Fauci covered his shame, face, as you've all seen in the uh, in on on Twitter in in recent
1: times. Um,
4: uh, yes, I have to they, point they out have, Anthony
1: Fauci touched his face at that moment, and you're yes. not supposed <laughs> to touch your face. Uh, certainly not. He um, couldn't
2: take it anymore. And,
1: yeah. Right. You think it was actually Uh, suicidal at that point? Yeah, he was he was trying to commit suicide by touching his. Well, he
4: did make the point I think in his Science magazine interview that came out uh, over the weekend that jamming all those people on the White House podium right next to each other is not exactly how you set the example of social distancing, Uh, and I think he would much rather go uh, run this uh, briefing uh, virtually. And the president clearly has viewed this. And the reason these run on for ninety minutes, as his substitute for campaign rallies, and uh, as my colleague Maggie Haberman pointed out, you know, wants to portray himself now as a wartime president. Now, to all of us, that raises the question: If you're a wartime president, why did you ignore all of the radar warnings of what was coming in until it was fundamentally too late to be able to go save lives? And I think that the presidential election, not to inject this otherwise um, uh, nonpartisan conversation with too much politics, is going to hinge in part on those people who judge how the president responded from the moment he started responding versus those people who are going to remember that he spent two months wasting time um, when he could have been building up stockpiles of masks Asking the question, how prepared are our hospitals? Asking the question, do we have a vaccine underway? Asking the question, what else are we going to go need? And this is where the absence of rigorous process in this White House, those boring deputies meetings that don't happen, that's where you begin to pay the price for all of that. And so I think we've seen that underway. So what we have is a a, a professional class, a medical class, that understood exactly where this is going, that was screaming about it, and that was basically told, we don't want to hear this. And what changed it? The stock market sell off. That's what got the president's uh, attention. And now the whole argument about when should we come out of our homes and get businesses going again, a perfectly legitimate question to have, is tainted by the fact that he's fearful that if he doesn't get the economy going before the election uh, is there, that he the one thing he was going to run on, uh, which was the uh, stock prices and economic expansion,
1: will have disappeared on him completely. It's sobering, by the way, to think that, you know, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, I was sitting with a bunch of people who were sort of scoping out the election. And they were all saying, you know, it's 50-50 or if anything – Trump has the upper hand because, while the economy may be a little softer, it's probably going to be pretty strong. You know, and that was three or four weeks ago, um, or maybe it was five weeks ago. But it was not—it was not that long ago. And and now, you know, I'm regularly reading stories about you know, you know, the stock market was down twenty. Is it going to go down thirty percent? Are we going to go from a recession to a depression? And 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 so on, um, in that in that vein, Rosa. I, I think uh, you would be betraying your entire fan base if I did not give you one more. Ch- or I would be betraying your fan base if I did not give you one more chance at gloom and doom. And you know, in this, I also draw to some extent on your work uh, in terms of, um, uh, you know, police and public safety. It seems to me that if you've got. 20, 30 percent, forty percent rise in unemployment. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, the average American, or half of Americans, not having four or five hundred dollars in savings. That there has to be a tipping point in this crisis, where frustration turns into unrest. Um, and I, you know, I'm not like trying to look for trouble here, but. You know, at one point, you know, yesterday, I I, I think, you know, the governor of New York said, you know, this could be four to nine months of lockdown. And, and, you know, I think he was trying to set expectations at the right level. But, you know, there's somewhere between here and there where this becomes not just an economic problem or a public health problem. It becomes a public safety problem. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's right. The only reason I didn't go there already is it's just too easy to go to the bad news right now. It's not challenging enough to go to the uh, even more apocalyptic scenarios but but no i I mean, Trump uh, said you know something like, well, the cure shouldn't be worse than the, than the disease and of course everyone got very nervous because we all know perfectly well that Trump will make his own decisions not actually based on. Uh, concern for either public health or for other people in general. He'll make whatever decisions he makes based entirely on, you know, narcissistic concerns. But, you know, he's, it's not crazy to raise that question. Um, And I don't think that we as a society or any of us as individuals even really have a vocabulary or, 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 or the right set of tools for trying to think through you know, what are the second order effects here? And at what point, if any, does the suffering and potentially deaths caused by the second, you know, caused by people losing income, uh, people losing access to food, uh, people losing access to health care for non-coronavirus issues. At what point do those we end up having more people. Suffering or even dying as a result of those then we then we lose through the virus itself in a direct way, and it, it's a really hard question, um, and I think you know we would be facing that question less squarely if we actually had a functioning government, a functioning social safety net, et cetera, et cetera. But given the mess that we're in, um, you know we're already seeing. A substantial amount of just plain public panic as you as you tell people with no income security and no food security and very little access to health care to start with, oh guess what now you're going to have none of it um, as opposed to only a little bit of it um, you know and and i I don't know the answer to your question, but at some point, do we get total unrest, do we get kind of mass? defiance particularly in impoverished urban areas of uh uh shelter in place decrees because people simply get desperate and kind of their pitchforks and head to state capitals or whatever uh you know I don't know um I do know and I, I you all know because we're we are very much all in this in this together although some of us obviously start out with a much much be- better cushion than others um, we all know that people are are very very frightened This is frightening for those of us who are fortunate enough to have great internet connections and comfortable homes to be hanging out in and plenty of food and plenty of of cash on hand for crises. Um, And it's absolutely downright terrifying for the many, many, many millions of our fellow Americans who, who don't have any of those things.
1: You know, I think that's a really important point, and it goes back to the national security point. Uh, None of us would go and, uh, if we had the option, uh, not think about the issues of resilience that are important in a family. You set aside money for savings, you set aside, um, you know, stockpiles of whatever it is you need to set aside. You make sure you've got a uh, a doctor, or a lawyer, a will, or whatever whatever you need to do. Because we know that in life, things come up that challenge us. And uh, what, what we have neglected to do as a society is to think through the questions of resilience that are caused by national crises of this sort. And there are many other societies in this world that have Uh, you know, assured their citizens that no matter what happens in a crisis like this, they'll get health coverage, they won't have to pay for it, they'll be taken care of, that if their business goes under, they'll be taken care of, uh, you know, perhaps in a minimal way, but that there is a social safety net for them. Uh, And you know that, too, to me, is an issue of national security, because if your society only has you know half of it five hundred dollars in the bank, then you can only withstand a crisis for a certain duration of time before the cracks begin to show in that society. And maybe that too, will be a lesson that we take from all of this um uh, once we get. the other side of it whenever that may come hopefully between now and then what we'll do here at deep state radio is the kind of conversation you just heard it's tempting when you listen to reports or watch reports um, uh, about you know bickering partisan bickering in the senate or we're in the middle of a political campaign to think that these are political issues but there aren't political issues really you know these are issues of science and they're issues of uh, good governance, there are issues of public policy, and there are issues in which we're all in this together. And we are going to really make an effort to rise above the political and try to focus on what's the right thing to do, what are the real risks that we face, what are the real options that we've got, what are the real things we should be talking about. And fortunately, um, after having been doing this for uh, three years now, um, uh, you know, we've got some really good, smart people to do that with uh every week. People like Rosa and Corey and David. Thank you. And Ed, who's uh usually with us, and Ryan who's with us with us later in the week, and with good guests. And we've been having some really, really good ones in the course of the past um uh a couple of weeks focused on this crisis, whether it's Lori Garrett, who's been with us a couple of times, or Ron Klein, who's been with us a couple of times, or uh, Jeremy Kanondike or uh, Juliet Kaim, uh, and we'll have more people like that this week. So tune in again later this week uh, as we follow up on all of this. Go to the deepstate deepstate network.com for more information on the things that we're doing and writing uh we did mention to you that we're having an event and indeed we're we're having an event but like everybody else uh we're just now nailing down when that rescheduled event is going to be i think it's going to be in the fall and we'll announce that in the next couple of weeks as well in the meantime thank you Corey. thank you rosa and thank you david Thank you, Ron, in absentia, and thanks to all of you for listening. Bye-bye.